You are listening to the Firecracker Podcast with Tony Rico. All right, we're back in the studio. It's been a little while since I've had you two uh, in for a podcast, but we've got our resident experts, Melissa Roth and Amanda Fried Kachka. And uh, I wanted to bring you guys back in here and talk a little bit. It's been a while since we've caught up, but I wanted to catch up on some of the current topics that some of the things that are happening in the softball world and, you know, our role with our position in our organization and really in the softball industry is to um, guide people, give them support, give them good advice. So we'll talk about a couple of things that are of, of interest right now. And then, but I want people to feel good about where they're at if they get the right, right type of information to help them navigate where it is that they're trying to, trying to go. So first thing I want to talk with you guys a little bit is about the, the recruiting uh, change. So obviously we've got a big change in legislation with the D1 recruiting rule and limiting and, and talking about now uh, waiting until the junior year of high school before they can be offered, um, get at, receive actual uh, offers. But what I wanted to cover with both of you is that you both came from a day and age where we didn't take trips. You, know, you didn't take any trips your freshman year. You didn't have the obsession of eighth grade. And I want you to talk a little bit about your experience. I'm going to ask you about them. And, and, and again, the big concept or big design of this is so that families that are listening to this can be reassured because I think what happens to the inexperienced, even 12 and under family kind of makes me cringe to think about, well, gosh, you know, there were 10, 12 year olds committed and we didn't commit any in this organization or, you know, are we behind? And, and everyone's always worried about not being in the right spot. Um, and the point I want to make to the families listening is that when they're keeping score and wondering if they're behind on things and, oh, oh what do we do, is I want them to be reassured that everything's going to be okay. Because uh, if we wound the clock back and all of a sudden, Amanda, we had to go back and start watching you at 14 and under or Mel, you at 14 <laughs> and under, I mean, I think it would have changed the game. So quickly, um, Amanda, I'll start with you. And... Um, what was your recruiting experience like? When did it take place? When did it kind of pick up speed? And, and how did it, how did it kind of, how did that whole process happen for you? Yeah. So, I mean, just to start, when I was junior high, eighth grade, really wasn't on my radar at all recruiting. Um, I knew that there was a possibility of going to college, but it just wasn't really at the forefront of things. I remember my freshman year, I started to get some of the, um, the interest mails asking to send in your bio and um, the questionnaire, a lot of girls yeah. get the questionnaire today. So it's kind of the beginning step. So it was freshman year. So I would send those back and then, but that was just kind of it. Um, it wasn't a priority. It wasn't like in the front. It wasn't the, what you're talking about no, every day. It was just part of something. All. But really your mind was focused on what? Competing? Just developing competing. your game? Yeah. We, we didn't have a lot of the recruiting tournaments, the showcases, anything like that. We had a couple of really big tournaments throughout the year that you knew if you competed well, you went to those tournaments, that's where you were going to get seen ultimately when it came down to that. But yeah, it was just really about development and enjoying the game, which I felt like was probably the biggest um, benefit that I ever had throughout my career was just being able to enjoy the game longer. And then when I got into 18 and under, so I was in 18 and under for three years, which doesn't happen much mm -hmm. anymore. Yeah. Everyone's trying to play down because that's where you're getting seen. But I played 18 and under for three years. And that's where I started to get a lot more of the education on recruiting. And um, but still no communication between coaches at nationals. We had one nationals every year. And that's where the coaches would come. And you would kind of maybe see that they were in the stands, but in no way did I think they were watching me and my every move? It was still just all about winning. The obsession wasn't primary. It wasn't no, there between, you know, it no. wasn't this distraction of. And, and so, you know, I came up in the coaching ranks with your generation of players and 
I remember just really looking forward to who you're, who was going to be at the next tournaments. You know who you're going to be playing, what the competition was going to be like. But we didn't. We only had the reality or distraction of recruiting. That wasn't until Colorado for us. And I know you guys. I don't think we went to Colorado, Colorado, but it yeah. really didn't happen for a while. So, so that allowed you as a younger player to really focus on how you were playing the game, what you enjoyed about it, and wasn't wouldn't you say that was key to your your development as a player, so that you could develop the right oh, way and then perform later on in your career. Oh yeah, because it was it was about getting better for the bigger tournaments and so we practiced a lot and we worked on our skills and development as, you know, athletes and um I think that really, you know, it it kept me um fresh in the game also. So I loved c- to compete. So every time we were on the field it was about competing. It was never about showcasing my skills. It was about competing as a team and um so I think it really helped my overall development as an sure. athlete and that was a sense of of watching you as a player that's something that i saw from i think the very first time i saw you play to all the way through the, you know the end of your career sounds like we got maybe the some helicopters or something some machinery going on outside <laughs> mel let me jump to you real quick on on you know your teenage years 13 14 15 what was that like playing for you you were with the cruisers before our organization then you came in so really what was your focus on honestly it, the same thing it, competing winning um you know, just having that camaraderie of like with the team, you know, competing in those tournaments, you know, I didn't even go to Colorado until I was a sophomore. You know, I never, I don't know, the idea of college softball didn't even like come to my mind until probably after my freshman year. And that now, you was... You both had really, really good careers. What do you think, how would the game have changed for you if you would have had the pressure that these kids have had in the last few years? How, what do you think that would have done to you? Wouldn't have played. Pretty simple. You would have I, ran. You would have got I, I, it, No, it, it's not that. It was, I, I played because that was always my one thing. I play because I enjoy it. I play because I want to. Now, if I would have had half these stresses to get the, the straight A's to do all these things, then to me that that, that's not the enjoyment of the game. Like it, it wasn't that, and I didn't want to do anything that I didn't enjoy. You think it could have uh, affected your desire to continue to play the game? Definitely, for sure. Interesting. And, and it seems like you were designed and, and made to play this game. So interesting. What about you, Amanda? How do you think it would have changed? I think the stress, absolutely, as a pitcher, especially one that I didn't develop until I got into high school. So when I think back at um, the opportunities I would have had in eighth grade would have been very, very minimal. Like there's no way UCLA would have been looking at me if they had to be looking at seventh and eighth graders at that time. I would have been passed up. So very, had, very good point. So had it been different back then, I probably would have been Your more than a major. Yeah, I grew mm-hmm. a ton in high school. I developed the most I had developed um, in high school and probably started to hit my stride about sophomore year. So if again, if we were in these times, I would not have been where I was. So that I think that's a good point to bring up, and I've been uh, educating coaches about this, about this the maturation swing. There's a four year swing. You take two girls that have are born on the same day. They have their 12th birthday on, let's say, today. And, <clears throat> excuse me, one's body has matured two years advanced. So even though she's 12, her body's 14. And that same kid next to her, same day uh, birthday, her body's 10. 
And so you've got a four-year swing. And so, you know, everybody develops differently. You may, you may mature a little faster. You may hit puberty a little bit later. And that's kind of affected the, the, the recruiting game because, you know, the way it was for the last couple of years, what about those kids that mature late? They're really slight of build. I mean, yeah. both of you, you know, didn't grow into your full size till later. And, you know, so I would say both slight of build when you were younger. And so what a difference maker, you know, there for the kids. So, um, you know, when do you feel like you just mentioned your sophomore year? Do you think is when you started to? physically yeah that's about when i started to kind of get into it yeah and then from there it was just a lot like the development was much um much steeper what would you say mel when you start to to really develop physically Uh, and physically honestly and mentally probably my physically my sophomore year mentally my junior year for sure going into my junior year now i also played when the game changed as well going from 40 feet to 43 feet so i played during a time of change in that aspect before college well, there's, you know, we can all, well, we can, and we'll talk about just the fact that if you're going to be in the softball, you have to adapt. <clears throat> there's plenty of things rules wise, you know, things that are changing. So you have to have the mentality that you're going to adapt. So take me now into, okay, the, the, the recruiting started to happen. It, you know, do you each take like 20 trips, go to like 15 <laughs> college camps? Uh, do your parents take out loans to make sure you can get everywhere? You know, and I feel for you parents that aren't sure, you know, you want to be able to provide for your kids and you want to make sure they have the same advantage or they don't, they don't want to be disadvantaged. But, you know, that financial commitment that people don't know, what should I be doing? Are they really interested or not? So what was your recruiting trips like? What was your actual getting out there? I know we're going to blow people away with this. Um, I took two, I guess, unofficial trips. That was it. And then two. What age? uh, I was 16. Junior year? Yeah. Junior year, two unofficial during my junior one, one to Texas and one to Michigan State. And then I took an official to Michigan State and I took an official to Louisville. And that's, that's all I did. And those were your senior year. Those were my senior year. Yeah. How about you, Amanda? Oh, man. I, well, I Nothing took, your junior year. I, well, I didn't take any un, any unofficial trips ever. Uh, a lot of just recruit education. Our coach took a lot of, our coaches took a lot of time just talking about the process and what to look for and just educating us on it. And um, so really our benchmark was that sep- or July 1st of, of your junior mm-hmm. year, after your junior year. Right. When you're supposed to expect phone calls, which is kind of what it's going more towards this year, except an entire year earlier. But so think about going into your senior year. So I'm the summer of my junior year. We're around our phone and you, you know, really you get some phone calls, you talk to some coaches. But by then we've kind of gone through the whole process of understanding where we stand, what we want to do, what the best fit is. So you've narrowed it down. And I was a super early commit which is funny to think to, but I committed, I think, the end of July that same month to UCLA. And then I took my official visit to UCLA. But um, all my friends were going on their five official visits that fall and making decisions a week or so later. After that. And do you yeah. remember that, that that was the time where seniors were taking five official trips, like say the top recruits had five opportunities to go, and I know you didn't take all five, uh, but really the college coaches were positioning for they wanted to be the last trip. So if early signing was the first or second week in November, the college coaches wanted to be that last trip. And I I can share the experience of having a a player. It was at that time UCLA and Arizona were the two top schools competing for players. And if 
Uh, I can remember with, let's say, Linnea, a player that played with us, you know, going to UCLA, loving it, feeling like she wanted to commit. She was there and, you know, you got to finish that other trip. She goes to Arizona, she comes back. And I can remember her being quite emotional on the phone because she was torn. And here she, a week ago, she felt like she wanted to be a Bruin and now she wanted to be a Wildcat. And it was that positioning of the last trip that was really, really interesting. And, you know, again, I think people listening, they're just going, wow, what a day and age, you know, and it was a couple of years ago. But the thing that I want everyone to understand is that you, you were you were you were brought into the process, but it wasn't this this imbalanced worry and anxiety and obsession that we see right now. It's 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 so unhealthy, and there's and it affects dis- decision making so much. And you know, Amanda, you were in a different situation back back in those days. There were two, maybe three teams that really were the prestige teams that were the top of the food chain. So, you know, you were really fortunate to be selected with a group of players that everything was kind of already in the design with the Gordon's Panthers. And so there wasn't a lot of that, that work. And so that was a unique situation. And I, and I bring that up because it's it nowadays we have so many coaches working to facilitate players. And so what organizations do you play for? You know, there might be four or six that are kind of leading the way or this or that, but everyone's trying to help families. And the other distraction that neither of you had is you didn't have seven to 10 coaches telling you what they could do for you and why you needed to come with them. And, and the reality right now for me is that the, a lot of families don't know how to gauge that, that, that value. You know, what is the rate of success? What is the, uh, for recruiting services, uh, you know, what's the efficiency rate? You know, how many people add that you every, for every people, 10 people you're taking in, how many are going to school, different things like that. Do your research. I think it's really important. So you turned out Okay. Yeah, we think so. <laughs> and, I, and I think that that's the thing that right now, you know, we're in an interesting time right now because now we've changed the legislation. But we've created a behavior over the last, you know, five or seven years that have put college coaches in the stands at seventh and eighth grade games. And, and I know that, you know, even if, if I was to give an opinion and we've got a little experience here, but say, you know, boy, it would be nice to see the seventh and eighth graders not have the distraction of having college coaches in there in the stands. Okay. Now we can't make them offers. So the legislation says you can't officially make an offer. You can let the coach know you're interested and that's it. And we'll talk to you your junior year. But now what's going to happen when families and let's say inexperienced or uneducated families with well-intended coaches, but still inexperienced. And then we see these college coaches still at the stands, but now they can't make offers. They can give you the nod that, yeah, we like her. We've got to watch her and we'll let you know in three years. But I don't see that easing the stress because when you see the producer still in the room watching you sing, you're still thinking about how you sing. And I think that that's going to be interesting to watch now. Okay. I I know that college coaches and I'm thinking out loud, but really I, I think that everyone needs to, that has relation, everyone that has relationships with college coaches, you need to ask them, what are they going to be doing? Where are they going to be spending their time? You know, especially this first year, there's going to be a lot of people figuring some stuff out. And I know that there are, are coaches because so much, so much of the money has been given out for the higher, uh, bigger programs. They've got to watch freshmen. Well, we've got freshmen playing 14 and under. So now they're going to be watching seventh and eighth graders as well. So I think it's going to take a little while. Hopefully, the college coaches can realize that, look, you know, we need to see kids, but let's slowly start filtering or filtering up towards 16s and 18s, spend most of our time there, rely on the credibility. And I guess, you know, if we have one or two or three college coaches listening, there was a day and age where, again, credibility, good information from coaches, not playing around the system, because I think if we're going to create this legislation and we're all going to figure a way around it, the wink, the the nod on the, that's just, that's just, you know, yeah. that's counterproductive. So my advice is really just to sit back and watch and 
ask and then be ready, ready to adapt. So if the college coaches are still in the stands at the younger age, age brackets, stay cool people. I mean, you just got to stay relaxed and, and take some of these stories and, and let your kids focus on playing the game. That's the biggest thing. When I look at you two right now, that's the biggest difference that these kids don't have the freedom that both of you had to just play the game. Well, and I, I, I think like the ultimate purpose for like both of us, like I didn't go to travel until first year 12s and it wasn't, I'm not going to play travel because I, I want to get a scholarship like that. That wasn't the purpose of, to play. Like I played because I enjoyed it. I played because I love to compete. And I think that's a huge difference, especially at like 12s and 14s. Like, so it wasn't about jumping to the college game. It was, it was getting to play more softball. Not at all. Yeah. How, how about you? How did you enter the travel world? And, and really, was that about just playing more often and playing what you loved? Yeah, you were playing I was soccer too. You were a great soccer yeah, player. Yeah, so. I played multiple sports all the way up until my senior year of high school. Um, thank goodness, I feel like, because I would have burnt out, especially if I would have playing, been playing um, in today's age. But um, I accidentally, my travel or my um, rec all star team was invited to a little travel tournament and inv- invitational. So it was my first taste of traveling. But I, I started my second year of twelves. Um, just because it was a good opportunity presented. We said, what the heck? Mm-hmm. But even at that time, travel wasn't what travel is now. Yeah. Travel was taking your game to the next level, you know, with a little better coaching, girls who are a little more dedicated, but it wasn't it wasn't your life. You weren't sure. signing your life. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 really Thinking like... back about it, for me, I probably would have been turned off if I was walking into this big business structure of recruiting obsession. My gosh, I mean, I had one year at 12s and we went into 14s. And I really, I was amazed at the fact that you guys were playing over 100 games a year and getting 300 at bats. And I wanted to be a girl. I wanted to be able, I, I didn't get to experience that at 12 years old. And I was just blown away by how much softball was being played. And it was so competitive back then. You yeah. know, again, watching you guys set the bar and not realizing when you're watching and Amanda Freed, Natasha Watley, and Jenny Finch, and you're watching these names come up, and you see talented players. Um, the, the the always the thing that sticks with me is is that first nationals at Rockford, Illinois. That was my first, and and you and I just got to play catch in the outfield, and we were pitching to each other. And I don't know if you remember that, but I remember just thinking this little kid is so <laughs> fun to play catch with. Like we were just because that's what I did with my friends growing up is we were just uh, playing catch, having a catch, and just enjoying and throwing different pitches and stuff. And that's really what it, what it was about. So I think the end game for people is again. Um, you know, careful of your obvious reactions. I mean, I think our emotions take us to an obvious place and, you know, the obsession and love for that we have for our kids and we want to make sure that everything's okay, but seek guidance. And within that guidance, um, it's not always attached to a certain level of experience, but gosh, experience just certain, certainly holds something and, and has its, its place and its value. So that's a little bit on the on the recruiting game that I wanted to just give a little insight and then thank you for sharing your stories. And I want to kick over now to some of the stuff that's taken place with, um, let's talk a little bit about the slapping rule. <laughs> So we'll talk about, a, you know, it seems like every two or three or four years, there's a rules committee that sits around. And, and again, I don't know anything. So I'm just in my mind, this is how I see it. And they've got to they've got to try to improve the game. All good, well intended, like coaching and everything else. Yeah. But my goodness, we've we've changed the game a little bit with the slapping row, which says now that at at contact, when the ball's being in contact with the ball, the entire foot of the batter must be inside the lines of the batter's box. And that was not the case before. It had to be any part of your foot was touching the line at point of contact. So how do you feel about the rule? Amanda, you're doing some broadcasting and you're seeing a lot of the higher level college games. So have you seen it affect the game? Have you seen it from your vantage point? Uh, What have you seen and how do you feel about it? I think it's definitely affecting the game. I think anytime there's a change like that, um, there's going to be a learning curve. So I'm seeing, I've been, been seeing quite a few slappers struggle. 
but it had gotten pretty obvious. Like the last couple of years, calling some games and seeing the slappers with the foot completely in front of home plate right. at contact and it not being called. I think it it's just taking advantage yeah. of a rule that's not clear, you know, sure. or just the umpire's not paying attention. So I think something had to have been done about it. I think they kind of went drastic, which I'm okay with. It's just there's going to be a learning curve. So it has affected do the you, game. Do you see it? Do you see it affecting them? in a good way and kind of a tough way is it are they slapping less are they are they more self-conscious are they visibly more self-conscious um is it is it changing and affecting the game i haven't seen it no i think when it went into effect a lot of slappers worked on the game but like anything you could work on it in practice but when you get into that game your instincts kick in so i think that's where a lot of the slappers are having issues because you talk about things like illegal pitches and you get illegal pitches called and you can't ask a pitcher to fix an illegal pitch even in a couple of months that they've been doing for years. Sure. So these slappers are, they're trying. I think we're still seeing them slap. I think it's situational, especially the slappers who have been dinged with it a couple of times. They're, you know, runner on third base or, you know, more of like a situational hitting kind of a situation. They're a little more cautious Mm -hmm. about it, but I've seen it called enough times to know that nobody's really changing too much. I, I've seen, I think the team that I've seen make the biggest change is Arizona. I think Mike's lefties are swinging away a lot more and he has uh, voiced um, an opinion <clears throat> to some of his in-game interviews. And, uh, but that's a program that was always known for slapping and that could handle the speed game better than anybody else. And, and you see kind of a change in their approach. So Mel, what do you think about it? I mean, like she said, like it's, you know, the rule goes into effect once people like, take advantage, I guess, of it. And so it becomes such a big thing. Like we had probably five years ago, and maybe a little more, um, the the pitcher's lane. Like, you know it's a rule, it's in there, but now we have the train tracks that, like, you have to stay within this, like, on this line. Well, that came into, a, like, a, it became a bigger issue because someone was on national television that was outside of it and it wasn't being called. So now we have to, like, make those rules a little bit, like, tighter just so they get enforced I mean, I think it it affects it in a way, but I don't think it's impossible to adjust to it. Most slappers, like I'd say out of a majority, I'd say 10% of the ones that are out of the box, like 10% across the plate. Sure. You're not going forward. <clears throat> you're not out that way. And most of them sit in the, like, like I think most of them are still actually within within the box, like in right. reality. Here's, here's, here's a couple of opinions I have. Um, I could see if there was... Uh, a population problem kind of like they do with like uh, uh, sometimes deer or something like that. And there's too many slappers uh, lineups are loaded with slappers. Now they're batting 800. They've affected the game in a negative way. They're getting on all over the place. They're scoring all over the place and we need to reduce them by 25%. Yeah. Kind of like the infinity wars. Let's reduce half of them. Yeah. So, you know, and uh, um, there's my Marvel plug. Um, but I don't think that happened. I don't really think there was an imbalance. I think that there was a nice, and it's just my opinion. I think there was a nice balance and it's not because I'm pro slapper or I'm pro anything or it's, it's the game has played out to where you have your hitters that can hit and you supplement your lineup with players that can put pressure on with speed. And so that would make sense to me if we really need to minimize. Okay. We always are going to have the, um, Oh gosh, the toughest job with the umpire to be able to, how many are you going to call? How many are you not going to call? But here's when when you brought up the point, Amanda, about them stepping over. So if we're going to, if we're going to keep them behind that white line, 
because that's what the rule says. The rule also says that the 18 inch plate is where strike should be. And so within the human nature of the game, what do great pitchers do? They start to expand this plate out here. This is not a strike. So this ball that's coming one to ball in the river, maybe we even have a term for it. It's in the mm -hmm. river. The river's not a strike to the plate. It's it's but it's called a strike. That's part of this game that happens, that you can establish that river, you can establish this, and that's where, you know, the other debate if we're gonna have one, whether we um, you know, um mechanicalize the strike call and have a machine call it yeah. or you know, that part of learning an umpire strike zone and different things like that. So how can we now build the wall for the for the left-hander and we don't attempt to build a wall because i don't think you could do that and so what it's done now is well how do i not if i'm calling pitches or i'm a pitcher really just start working on this river to the left hand of batters and start to extend that plate as much as i can because you know now we put them behind this line mm -hmm. so i i think it has to kind of work both ways if you're going to bring them back you got to bring this back an inch or unless, again, well, no, actually, they're fine in the box and they can actually reach two or three balls across the plate. But we know, you know, as a pitcher, they can't do that. You can scrape it off and the best they're going to do is tap the ball to the third baseman. So that's just a kind of a thinking out loud dynamic that makes the whole thing kind of difficult. That I get the purpose, again, the intentions, what you're trying oh, yeah. to do, but we've kind of misplayed it. I, I never felt like a lefty was even against me. So if she went across the plate to get an outside pitch, you know, again, it's and it kind of go to the next row we're going to talk about. It's like a catcher blocking the plate. I mean, these are little things within the game that have this little room to play with that were all in the design of the game. And mm -hmm. it's kind of that chess match in there. But so. I think that's also what happens is like the TV highlights one aspect of the game, highlights this one thing, and it's not a majority. It's actually a minority of it. And then so it's like, oh, we have to have a rule against that. So like, And most people aren't doing that like the majority's not doing that so i think, but I think stepping across from the outside here. is pretty prevalent that's something that i noticed that that you know how how can they stop they're going to the ball it's not like they're saying oh i'm going to cross the line to go get yeah. this. it's like jumping out of bounds in, in basketball i'm going to shoot from here i mean they're not doing it consciously and so uh uh, but I think it's not in front of the box. We really, you know, even if a no, lefty's called no, out in front of the box, we rarely, even if they're called out, you replay it, and very rarely are they out yeah. in front of the box. It's always going to that outside pitch. And, uh, you know, it's going to it's gonna be interesting. I'm glad I don't have the responsibility of enforcing it. And, and <laughs> I, you know, these yeah. poor umpires, uh, it's already a brutal, brutal profession I to think, be part of. I just think in general there's a lot of over-analyzing just the at-bats and the pitchers in general. So coming from the pitcher's perspective – I would love to work off the plate, into the river, a ball off. But when you said the batter doesn't have to make an attempt to get out of the way of the ball, hitters are taking advantage yeah. of that now. Yeah. It's like the rule. Yeah. So now instead of, yeah, if the ball comes into the batter's box, you shouldn't have to move. If you get hit, you get to go to first base. But now we got toes up on the line. We're really borderline on being out of the box. We ain't budging. Sometimes our elbows hanging over the plate. And as a pitcher, I want to go inside more than anything to get you up, but you don't have to move. And I can't cover the outside of the plate, and the strike zone has been pinched. So I have rarely seen the river or a little bit more but, off called. So the lefty slapper's coming over. Pitchers are trying to go off the plate. The pitch isn't called. There's no area. I just, I've seen where it has really affected, not that it should, because I think pitchers should be able to adapt. Good talent can, but. I feel like it's taking away a huge part of the pitching game. I, I think I the counter move there is uh, 
it's not well received nowadays. So, you know, anybody that remembers Bob Gibson or Nolan Ryan or maybe Michelle Granger or I, I don't know her personality. I wouldn't but get I my mean, toes on the line but there, but there, there is, <laughs> yeah, that's you cool. see what I mean? There, there, there was a counter move competitively that, that you know, again, the, the game is one at the plate. And so against a certain, Danielle Laurie, you know, yeah. and, and again, I know her a little bit. It was a long time ago that we used to talk, but I, I would just imagine if she sees you digging in or hanging on that plate that you're <laughs> yeah. not going to, you're not going to get hit to go to first base. You're going to get hit and just probably like end up in the emergency room. Yeah. And so we're not promoting before you want to write me emails and say, are you saying to hit people? But self-preservation as a pitcher, if you don't learn to establish an inside game and you're putting balls over the outside part of the plate and allowing hitters to have a, a dominant presence and swing as hard as they can, keep the mask on because eventually you're going to get one back in the face. And, oh, sure. and maybe that's something we'll talk about another time too is, is plate ownership and different things like yeah. that. So well, that's I, a little bit about actually, that rule, but it definitely... Ooh, the, the batters, so like not, being, <clears throat> not having it move. Like there's so many to like playing in a game, like obviously that's a rule that changed like... If I don't have to remove that, I'm perfect. I, I don't. I don't. I don't like it. I don't. I don't, I like, don't like the. It at you know. All. I, I think there was an art to taking the dose. Oh yeah. And there was a. You know, oh, you yeah. saw it in baseball, and there was an art to that. You know, and but even then, there. You know, the ribs are still the ribs. And again, I'm only uh, quoting what Bob Gibson said. Okay, so and he pitched in the '60s, <laughs> but he said, he said, hell, he goes, batter can move his legs, can move his arms, you could, he can move his head. He goes, but he can't move his ribs. <laughs> and I'm just quoting, and then uh, they show a clip of Willie Mays who hit what 600 some home runs, uh, and they're just going down in the box. But if you listen to the testimonies of these hitters that had faced the greatest pitchers in the world, if the, the greatest pitchers in the world established a certain amount of fear yeah. in the best hitters, oh. oh yeah, and that's what when I say self-preservation, that's at times what keep you alive. So not hitting people but pitching off the plate. So we're kind of going a little bit that because we're all competitive. We're going to go down that road <laughs> yeah. a little bit. So let's go to the uh, obstruction rule. So obstruction. <clears throat> I personally am, again, all about what people are trying to do. I personally am tired of just seeing so many games affected. It seems like they're starting, seems like more catchers now are starting to get it. You see more catchers now are lining up in front of the plate. You know, so now the rule dictates it used to be what in the act of catching the ball yeah. and you could you know, block the plate. Now it's ball has to be in the glove. But that was the same when it was like when I played, like you have to have the ball before you can block the plate. You know, but I'm still like the, the crazy thing is I'm still seeing catchers fully obstruct and it not get called. Like and I'm looking like, OK, like that's like like fully like you never even gave a chance so just like with the slapping we know that it's not going to be 100% of the time where there's always going to be an argument they called it they didn't call it uh it seems like it's catching a little bit but do you like that it's is it increasing safety is that is that uh you know so catchers aren't getting plowed but do you like what it's done to the game i don't at all yeah. No, tell I hate about, it. Tell me about the play at the play. I just, I'm not even, I'm not a catcher, but to me, there, are, you cannot separate the act of catching into two different parts or multiple parts. I mean, you would, you know, no, no, it's, I, it's I a, agree. It's a fluid motion of catching and going into the tag, and you're protecting your plate. So if you're having a catcher now have to stand clearly in front of plate to catch it and then make the tag, but you're allowing the arm distance of the runner to backdoor slide. You think about the distance the catcher now has to go after catching the ball to go completely opposite to catch yeah. the runner. Maybe now there has to be an adjustment on that. The hit, the slide has to go straight into the bag if you're going to, you know, yeah. make it even, I think, because I just don't, as a, as a competitive athlete, I needed to get to that bag. So I'm going to slide feet first hard, expecting 
that the catcher is going to be sitting there, but I got to get her off that plate, you know. But instead, we want to make sure nobody gets hurt. Sorry, I'm <laughs> no, no, no. I'm gonna make sure nobody gets hurt. Juices get I love going. it. You know, don't slide head first. First of all, yeah, like don't. big thing. If you want to get injured, please slide don't. head first to the home plate. Too many, too many kids slide yeah. head first. There's no reason no. to people, slide. People of today's game, these were the old rules that kept us alive before we had all the precautions and safety rules to to supposedly keep us you know, from danger. A, but you, yeah, you don't go head first at home. A catcher's gonna yeah. But an obvious obstruction, I. Obviously, I don't think that a catcher can sit on the plate, block it, or block it without the ball. But I just think there has to be some sort of give in the motion of catching and going into a tag so they can do their due justice and and blocking the plate and not allowing a run. And we get what we're trying to do. But, I mean, are they ever going to take, like, um, injuries at a rodeo? You know, like like put all mattresses on the ground? Like, like how much can you safeguard games and things? The play at the plate has always been... One the, of play, the most exciting. beautiful, exciting plays. <laughs> but he, to watch here's what I'll tell you. I think it's honestly, I think it's a great change. I'm not gonna lie. Like, I think it's finally. You want to know what, like, the, what I have seen, and like, obviously there was some controversy in Super Regionals last year. Now catchers are coming up the line. That's the difference. They're coming up the line in front of the plate that way. That's that is obstruction. You're not at home plate now. In a different day and age, if you're up the line, I'm not sliding. I'm going through you. Like that's that's the thing is, so you better be at home plate. So I do that. So do like, you think there should be a discretionary area where if the throw takes you up the line, you, or so you know, we were talking earlier about what happens if, if your you position your position well, the throw is getting there before the runner. But the left fielder has thrown the ball that bounces. You know, left fielder will throw the ball. If she's checking the side spins a little bit, the ball will bounce in front of the plate and kick, kick off, off towards foul territory. And so you have to come across the foul foul line to catch the ball. But you're placing yourself in front of the – And so I'm I, asking, I agree. shouldn't there be a discretionary? Go, look, the throw took her there. Yeah. So we but, can't call it obstruction. Otherwise, you've got to stand there and – but here, here's the thing is like even on that. So, okay, so if I'm sitting at the front of home plate, say my left foot's on the corner and I'm in front of home plate, now you have the whole back half to slide. If I switch my feet, now my right foot's on that left corner and I'm coming across the line, you have the front half. I'm not obstructing anymore. You have the front half of that plate to slide into. I, you have to I slide hear what inside. you're saying. Now what I want to do is I want to, I want to go back and I want to find, because there's so many good replays of, of, of plays like that where the throw kind of kicked in and then looking at realistically, could that catcher have done that? Yeah. And we'll, we'll have to look at that because you know, I totally if, understand what you're saying. But and, it's and the moment they, they very come good in front at, of the at, box. You're like, very good at applying things that happen in games yeah. to your lessons. So I like the way that you adapt. So I hear so, what you're saying. And like the thing is, is like, okay, so most of the time when I see it is like, okay, so you know where the edge of the box and the line are kind of meeting. That's where catchers are blocking the plate. Like most of the time, like that's where they're obstructing. Now there's a good two feet before I get to the plate. Now, like you shouldn't be like, I disagree that you shouldn't be able to do that. Also with the obstruction rule, it needs to be called at the bases. I can't straddle a base as a shortstop. That's obstruction. Right. I can't put my foot in front of first base as a first baseman with someone die, like coming back. That's obstruction, but we're not seeing it called at other bases. Right. Oh, definitely the emphasis is at home play. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it solely is. Now, for like for safety purposes, what I tell my kids, if a throw takes you up the line, catch it before it hits, like crosses that foul line. If you can get up the line, because there is not a single runner that runs from second 
to home that doesn't take an, the, yeah, inside the line. They right. don't. It's a safety thing. If I have to come up the line, it's not going to avoid any, you're not going to have a collision. You're not going to anything. There's not a single runner that runs down. I want to see the that. play where the catcher does switch feet and creates the lane on the other Precise. side in foul territory and, and see how that plays out. Cause I haven't seen that once. The but only I, but I the runner would probably be really but confused. I, I, I understand what you're <laughs> but, saying. Yeah. So that, that's, that's the difference of just catching it on a different side of the base. Yeah. It would be like, say a throw is coming from right center field yeah. and I'm on one side of the base for now, someone's like sliding into third base and the third baseman is on the inside part of the bag, but now they're on the outside part of the bag because that's where the throw took him. I'm not obstructing. I'm getting the ball. I'm still giving you the base. So like I said earlier, you work on a lot of good things in your lessons. I can't wait to see how you implement this into your, your routines of catching it in front or starting up in front, mm-hmm. uh, positioning in front, and then switching your feet and catching a ball on the that's, foul territory that's, side. So that's a little I'd say, uh, you know, where, where, do do we want to go back and not have the Pete Rose play at home where he affected that catcher's life, you know, after he plowed him over in the all-star game, you know, Pete Rose uh, ran into, I think it was, uh, was it Ray Fossey and broke his collarbone and it was an all-star game in the major leagues. And uh, there was a comment or a question asked him afterwards, like it's an all-star game. Why are you going after guys? And he said, this is the way that I play the game. And everybody that bought a ticket to that game wants to see me play the way that I play every single game. So I gave it to him. And that's his fault for not knowing who I am and what I was going to do and thinking I was going to come in, you know. And, and so it just it left a signature. Be, we wouldn't know Ty Cobb. But it, you also most. have to be aware of those players that are like, look, do I go into a base soft? Do I go in the base hard? One thing Amanda said is we slide hard and we slide through. Like we're going probably straight in more often than not. We're not sliding around. We're going well, through. The day you. of the slide bias and reach around with your fingers. Yeah, that's that's that's, pretty, that's pretty where prevalent. we're in. So we're avoiding that. You both came from a day of self-preservation softball, where you know you had to establish ownership of a base, the plate, pitching, batting, and you know, oh yeah, you're talking so. about plays at the plate. Like it, so many times, even on force plays, it's like if that ball gets to me late from a fielder, I know I'm going down. Like they're coming through my feet, like and I'm gonna go down. Yeah. And I'm not mad. It's clean. And now it's what's a clean slide, what's a dirty slide, right? And so, well, we, again, we can bring that. We're going to stay on, on track with. We're going we're gonna to move on to college softball, NCAA. And are there any surprises, any surprise programs? Who's who's done better than people would have predicted? Who's anyone? I want to say I'm, I'm proud of a couple uh, ladies out there that have done a good job with their program. But anyone... Spark your mind on just having better years than. Uh, well, I think Arizona State. I yeah. I think sure she's done a. Oh, she's job. it's been fun to yeah. watch. I I watched them at the Kajikawa their first weekend out, and I was impressed. But they just kept getting better, and it's funny how throughout the entire Pac-12, I feel like everybody every weekend was surprised <laughs> that they were yeah. winning all their games, which I think now it's finally clicking that. They doing something right over there, and, and um, Juarez, the pitcher, Juarez, yeah, pretty She's, legit. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> really, yeah, you really, have to be really right. Legit. She, she, I haven't seen a left-handed pitcher, and and there's been a lot of great ones, but I haven't seen a left-handed pitcher embarrass left-handed slappers in a long time. I mean, we're talking like Burkhart esque yeah. or or I mean, she. Embarrasses, and she, I, I've seen her times when there's three lefties, and she's done in about nine or ten pitches. It's like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, done. <laughs> and just walks off yeah. like that's a day's work. And it wasn't like that for her last year. Right. I think that's what's been most fun is that she really developed over the off season yeah. and turned a corner like big time into the. You season. think more programs are using kind of like the mental training and some things? So, so is it natural uh, development, maturation, or is there they're they're doing some head work? And it seems like a lot of games are consciously slowing. Their, a lot of players are slowing their game down, and 
being aware of the process more and, and just, uh, and it's fun to see that, that growth. Um, how about, uh, Arkansas and South Carolina? The SEC? Oh yeah. To watch our Arkansas is fun to watch. I'm not gonna lie. They're fun to watch. They're, they're enjoying every moment. Like, I don't know, just to, to see what Courtney's done over there, like that, that's huge. She's huge. done such a good job. Anytime I think the odds are against you and you're building something, you know, uh, I think it's not and not an easy thing to do. And uh, and I like when I pull up the standings. So I'm going to pull up the standings here. But when I see where South Carolina and uh, Arkansas are positioned, I think South Carolina is two or three. And then Arkansas is maybe six or seven. I'm going to find it here. And um God, it's great. It's great to watch because they're positioning themselves. And so, yeah, South Carolina's uh, third with a 15 to nine in conference, 43 and 13 overall. And then Arkansas is, is now seventh. And so below Arkansas is in 2018 is Alabama, Auburn, wow. Kentucky, and Missouri. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Well, you That's think Georgia, like last year, Georgia Georgia's finished hanging number two and- bottom of the S. They were last in the SEC, dead last. And for a while, I think they, I mean, what are they? They're number two, you said. They're number two. I love to watch them hit. They yeah. Have. So, you know, when Jerry left, uh, you know, and, and forgive me for not knowing who's in charge of their offense right now, but boy, what some beautiful swings. And that's, and that's really what Beverly's done over at South Carolina. She's brought, bought in uh, Matt. Matt Lyle, who's a, a very well-known name. Uh, but boy, what a game changer. Uh, I was looking yesterday that they lead the SEC in home runs. Uh, I think they lead them in doubles. Um, they're up there. So the power numbers are definitely up. And it's just exciting to see. I think it programs get up the food chain a little bit. I think Matt compliments Bev. Like, oh gosh, like I mean, it's hugely. Obvious. Like, yeah. like now you just don't have like the pitching and defense. Like now you have just this huge offensive threat one through nine. Like, and that's that's been a whole like new turn for this program. Yeah, uh, she. Yeah, they they're just doing outstanding. And uh, and then you kick back over to you know if we think of the uh, there seems to be a good handful of pitchers that are dominating this year. There's some good dominant pitchers. So Amanda, who goes to the, who comes to your mind when you think of, of, of uh, college's most dominant pitchers this year, some great ones having some great years. Yeah. I, I would say dominant pitchers, but also staves. I think we're seeing more one, two punches than we've seen in a yeah. really long time. You know, Florida, they always have a deep staff. I think what's make made the PAC 12 so strong this year is that there are multiple pitchers on a team that can go the distance in game two. We didn't see that last year. So um, like Washington has Taryn Alvello and then they've got Gabby Plain, a freshman who she's thrown no hitters in perfect games. And um, and then, you know, UCLA has Rachel Garcia, who's just mowing. And then a couple behind her. And then you've got Juarez and the staff behind her at Arizona state. Um, But I think really, you know, Oregon, Megan Kleist and um, Miranda Ellish. Ellish. And then they have Maggie Ballant, who was on the Player of the Year watch list is last she year. Injured? Uh, no, okay. I'm not. I don't think so. Just, <laughs> just trying to break through, you know, and a staff like that. Like she's yeah. an awesome option to have off right. the bench. But yeah. I just think the way that Kleist and Ellish are rolling right now, it just unfortunately they complement each other really well. Yeah. Um, they, uh, you know, 
Megan's pretty calm. Clyce is pretty calm, kind of even kill. And then I like Elish's uh, animation. She celebrates things. I mean, we'll see how that affects her kind of in high emotion play and stuff like that. But the amount of pictures, Pac-12 is having a, a, a breakout year. They just haven't had this type of strength for a while. Yeah. But if you look at, yeah, you look at the numbers. I mean, I think you start with Florida. You start with what Barnhill does uh, with regularity, oh, yeah. which I think makes that Georgia game even more impressive that they went, what, three home runs back, on her. Back, and, back. and I saw a distinct approach towards her, but that's just through observation seem to have some success uh um ocasio mm -hmm. uh, you know she compliments her compliments her so well so it's going to be interesting to see what florida does there's been a couple pictures a couple programs out there kind of dropped off a little bit we don't need to mention their names or anything some we thought were going to be there not quite so i think the sec's just had a little bit of an off year but hey i mean it, they're due they've had so many great years they could come back strong in postseason win it all and you know there it is again but pac-12 going with oregon we've talked about uh you know Rachel Garcia, and this has been for me the most fun to uh, UCLA team that I've 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 watched play in, in over the last few years. Uh, they just are playing with an energy, and, and I'm a big fan of the Perez sisters. So I don't really know them personally, but my gosh, the way they play the game, the energy, the I want to say the feistiness. Yeah, you know definitely. I'm watching. Um, is it Kylie, the second baseman? Mm -hmm. I'm watching her kind of mess with the other teams in the way she presents her hitting. She's doing the step forward, some of the Don Ford, you know, slapping um, uh, style. I believe he's the one responsible for it up north. And then she'll go regular stance and she's just playing the chess game, you know. And I watched her against Alvello. Try to do a couple things, and Alvalo from Washington came hard inside on her and threw her timing off a couple times. And then Kylie just says, "Okay, I'm not going to mess with. It. I'm just going to dig in." And I'm just seeing the the intensity of these battles, you know. And so the Pac-12 to me is, has been the most fun to watch and more fun to watch probably in the last. I'll just kind of guess four or five years at least. And there's such good parody in it. And what a knockout conference. So you've got Oregon, uh, Washington, see if they can, they can stay hot. They started off really, really hot. You got UCLA that just has this, ooh, they just have this steam behind them right now. That's just, they're <laughs> going to be tough to deal with. And then, uh, we'll see if Trish can make some noise with the Arizona state, you know, and, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting. So yeah, there's been some pretty interesting surprises. And then we've got postseason starts when? Uh, so conference tournaments are this week and then should start next week or next Friday. Yeah. So she'll be, a, it'll be a pretty interesting. So, well, I'd like to thank you both for coming in and revisiting and, uh, I'll tell you, we'll get together again in probably a couple of weeks and cover some of the hot topics and some stuff is going on and maybe some teaching moments. So I appreciate both of you being in here and, uh, we're going to take a little break and then we're going to go have some fun in the cage and go shoot a little in the cage, uh, segment and see what you guys can do with the bats a little bit. So thanks to both of you and we'll see everybody next time.